So, does a person make history or does history make a person? I would always answer that, both. Because you can't really understand someone completely until you understand a little bit of the context of their history. I think you would even say that to me, Jeff, if you only knew how difficult my circumstances have been, then that would help to explain. Well, the same thing is true of the man that we've come to look at his story today, Elijah. Uh, What we know is that in Israel's history, the first three kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. But in each of their lives, they struggled to finish well. Solomon, for example, his political marriages brought false worship, uh, foreign worship into the lives of God's people like never before. We know that when Solomon died, the kingdom divided. The south was called Judah. It would last for another 300 years. There would be about 20 kings who reigned in Judah. The Bible tells us that eight of those kings listened to God. 12 of the kings did not. Well, that's not a great average for God's people. The north was actually still called Israel. It would last another 200 years. 19 kings would reign in the north. And the Bible tells us that all 19 of those kings turned from God. Well, this is significant because our story picks up today with the seventh of the 19 kings in the north. His name was Ahab. Ahab was married to a woman that you've heard her name, you just don't know anybody who's named after her, Jezebel. And this is what it says of them in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 32. He, that's Ahab, set up an altar for Baal, we'll talk about this, in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So here's, this is about idolatry. All right, when it mentions Baal, Baal was one of the false gods that the, that the Canaanites would worship. Baal was known as the Lord of rain and dew. That's significant for us to remember. Asherah was, was the fertility goddess. She's sort of like, think of her like Baal's girlfriend in, in this, this, this whole deal. They work together to bring about agricultural fertility. Baal worship sometimes would include sacrifices to these false gods. And sometimes we're even told when when the circumstances were most serious, they would even sacrifice children. When it it comes to Asherah, right, the worship of Asherah, I'm just going to kind of give this in code. They would often act out within the temples of worship 
what they wanted the gods to bring about in, in terms of fertility. It, it was religious prostitution. That's just two words that, that shouldn't even ever be put together. The question is, how in the world could God's people get mixed up in something like that? Well, here's how. It's because when they entered the land of Canaan, Canaan, unlike the wilderness that God's people have been traveling through, in the wilderness, it's about shepherds. In Canaan, it's about farms. It's about the farm ground. And the key to success with that the farms would produce, this was the key to prosperity. So all of a sudden, God's people are wrestling with, we know God can get us through the wilderness, but can he give us crops that produce enough that, that, that we will be blessed? Maybe, just maybe, the best thing for us to do is worship all these gods. And the scripture's clear, it angered God. I mean, think about the first two commandments that he gives. No other gods before me, right? You are to make no images to, to worship instead of me. This is the first time in Israel's history that idolatry is intentionally sanctioned by Israel's own leaders. The, pro, the false prophets are being paid by the state. The, the worship of other gods is being promoted and financed and even enforced because we know that many of those who worshiped God were in hiding, fearing for their lives. This is the worst that anybody had ever seen it. And into that setting, Elijah appears. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we are introduced to him like this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, remember that's the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So here he comes, Elijah, literally out of nowhere. Uh, scholars today still not sure exactly where Tishba is in, in Gilead. We would say it, it's the boonies. It is the middle of nowhere. Elijah on the scene. His name means Jehovah is my God. And God led him to speak to the king. Now that takes courage. That takes courage if you're talking to a king who is persecuting the followers of the, of the one true God. But the message that Elijah brings is God's alive. He's alive. Ahab, you're not acting like he is, but he is the living God and I serve him. And by the way, he's gonna withhold all moisture. All the rain, all the dew, right? It's as though God is saying, here's the announcement. I'm going after your gods. You're gonna worship Baal, who you claim to be the Lord of rain and dew? Well, watch this. I'm gonna remove all the rain and dew and let's see how Baal does. Not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but years. Elijah the Tishbite, message delivered, 
mission accomplished. Verse two, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Elijah, no rain means there's gonna be a downturn in the economy. But Elijah, I've got you. Now, I don't know, it doesn't record Elijah saying this, but I think there might've been some of us who, would, who maybe would try something like, wait a minute, God, you, you want me to go hide? I mean, I mean come on, I, I'm a palace guy now. I mean, I realize I grew up in the middle of nowhere, but come on, God, I have just spoken to the king, the king that most everybody's afraid of. I delivered the message. Come on, God, I, I've got the courage. You tell me what to keep saying to him, and I'll keep being your man who shows up at the palace, and I'll tell him what you want told. And God says, I want you to hide. I want you to hide at Kareth. Kareth means cut off. And Elijah there, I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna provide for you in some ways that seem natural, like a brook. When no other rain, no other dew, but there's going to be a brook, water that flows that you're gonna drink from. And I'm gonna provide in what you will recognize to be some supernatural means. Because Elijah, I'm gonna command some thug ravens to bring you a sandwich every morning and every evening. That's what ravens do, by the way. Meat and bread every morning, every evening. That seems to be, because of the language in this, about a year. A year. You ever had a year where the issues that you dealt with kind of made it feel like it almost just shut everything down. Maybe even before the one that you're in now, maybe it was a year when business was bad. Maybe it was a year that you had a family struggle and, and just with everything that was going on, it was almost as if you were cut off from everything else. The truth is we wanna go, we wanna go. But sometimes God says, I want you to hide and I'll be there because courage is not all that is required in following me. Courage is not the only thing that you need. Now, truth is, most of us are not good at hiding. I mean, we, we don't like it, but what we see in the Bible is that it is often in these moments, this is where God reveals, this is where God instructs. In this story, he sends Elijah into hiding, one, to protect him, but two, he's gonna grow him up. He sends Elijah into hiding to begin to teach Elijah something so incredibly important to 
depend. Depend on God. And we throw that word out all the time, but that's not normally how most of us operate. Sometimes I tell the people that we're getting ready to go on a mission trip, let's say somewhere in the world, uh, maybe a place where we don't speak the language. I, I, a part of what I love about those mission trips is that you have to learn how to, to completely depend in every circumstance. You're depending on someone to communicate for you in many instances. You're depending on on them to get you travel where you need to be at what time. You're you're depending on them for, for food, for everything. You wake up every morning realizing that if God doesn't supply what you need each day, it's gonna really be about impossible for you to do what you need to do. My point is that is actually our circumstances every single day of our lives. It's just, we don't see it like that because most days we think I'm the one who's communicating, right? I'm the one who decides where I travel. I'm the one who's, who's in control of all this. We don't think we need to depend until sometimes the things that we most rely on are taken. Verse seven. Sometime later, the brook dried up. The brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. You ever seen the brook dry up? Maybe it's a job that you lost, an income that was reduced. The Tao that plummets. It is then that we find out who or what we really depend on. Sometimes we think that, that, that we are in control, right? We, it's like, I, I've got this and I, I, have, I have made smart decisions where really I, I, I don't have to depend on anyone else. I've got this until something so small that we can't even see it shuts down our life because it can take life. And suddenly we are not as powerful as we thought we were, and it is then that we find out who and what we really depend on. Sometimes we say, God, we depend on you, but, but the truth is when our health is threatened, when our finances are threatened, when our freedom to operate is threatened, it is then that we find out who and what we really depend on. When our attitude, right, goes south, because we can't do the, the normal things that we do for, for happiness and fulfillment, right? I can't watch sports, right? I, 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 can't, I can't go shopping. I, I, can't, I can't keep my life busy with, with my friends. I can't, I can't work, right? Suddenly it reveals there is this level of dependency on other things. Now question, are those things wrong? Absolutely not. God gives us those things to enjoy, but there is a difference in enjoying those things and actually depending on those things for our joy and our fulfillment, suddenly in those moments, it is revealed. We have our idols. 
And when the brook dries up, what is God doing? And often what he's doing is he's teaching. He's teaching us the same thing that he was teaching us when he provided the brook in the first place. He said, here's the brook to drink from, depend on me. When the brook dries up, he's teaching the same thing. I want you to learn to depend on me. Here's a life lesson. There is absolutely nothing in this world that is nailed down. Nothing that brings security, nothing to depend on. That's why the Bible continually calls us to set our affections on things that are above. Don't let anybody tell you that if you serve the Lord, the brook will never dry up. I'm gonna say no matter who you are, at some point in your life, the brook dries up. And when it happens, it may take you a while to know it, but I'm telling you, God is still present and God is still working. True story, there is this little town in Alabama where if you actually travel to this little town in Alabama, you will find a strange statue. It is the statue of a woman who is holding above her head a giant bug. It's an enormous bug. Like why in the world would a town have a statue with a lady who's holding a bug over her head? Well, the, the, the story is cotton was king in this territory until the day came that this little dude, he's called a boll weevil, actually arrives in the territory. And this little animal, he destroys everything when it comes to cotton crops. I mean, just wiped out. People were desperate. But in the process, there was one guy who said, you know what, let's try to plant some peanuts. And true story, they started planting peanuts and over time, they ended up making about five times the amount of money that they ever made with cotton crops. In return, they built a monument to the boll weevil. No kidding. There's even a historical monument, boll weevil monument, December 11, 1919, in profound appreciation of the boll weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity. This monument was erected by the citizens of Enterprise, Coffee County, Alabama. True story. They thought the boll weevil was the worst thing that ever happened to them. It actually pointed towards something greater. I'm telling you that little story because I want you to know that's how it works with dry brooks and God. It may take you a while to know it, but when brooks dry up, God is always still working. Now, here's the key. It may not be about more money. See, that's the part we don't like. That's the part that got Israel in trouble in the beginning. That's why they wanted to worship Baal, because what if the crops don't produce? It's about prosperity. I'm telling you, God's up to something when brooks dry up, but sometimes it's not about money. It's about more than money. It's about God 
Are we depending on him and him alone? Sometimes things dry up because God is moving us where he wants. Sometimes he moves you to a different provider. That's what happened with Elijah, but you got to be close enough to hear. Verse 8. Remember verse 7, the brook dries up. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Zarephath. Now, as a kid, I grew up in the south in the middle of the center of what's called the Bible Belt. Well, if you would look at Zarephath on the map, Zarephath would be the center of what they would have called in that day the Baal Belt. I mean, just the whole country, the whole culture centered on Baal. But, but Elijah's like, okay, I, I'm following God. This is where you tell me to go. This is where I'm going. And, and I wonder if, if, if Elijah played the imagining game. It's like, it's like God's telling him there's going to be this widow and she's going to provide for you. And, and if I'm Elijah, I'm probably going, then she must be loaded, right? God's got this widow. She's loaded. She probably got a nice house, gated community, pool, which will be really nice because the brook's been dried up for a little bit. That pool's going to be really, really nice. Elijah arrives in town and he meets this widow who is gathering sticks. He asks her for a drink of water. He asks her for a piece of bread to eat. And this is her reply in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Okay, okay, wait a minute, God. You said that she is supposed to provide for me. God, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but she is more broke than I am. God, God, how is someone with less than me supposed to help me? When I'm reading this story, prepping for this message, I'm thinking, you know what? How many of us, our pride would prevent most of us from ever receiving help from that woman, even if God told us to. If God told us to go and, hey, you're gonna get help there, and we got there and we saw her condition, for many of us, our pride would never let us receive it from her. But what the story says is that God was directing the widow, and it says that God was directing Elijah because the picture is they both have need. They need. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. (laughs) Like that takes some guts, right? Like, you don't hear Elijah say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear your story, and I, and I can't believe this is what you're going through. He's like, no. He's like, you know what? First, first make some bread for me, 
and then, and then make some for yourself. Why would he say that? Because it's behind the story, what is very clear, God says that he's directing the widow and God is directing Elijah. They both need. So verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day that the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now that woman had every reason not to believe, right? I mean, the the money was funny in this whole situation. Why would she give away the little that she had? But they both need to learn something more about the God who was directing them both. And so check this out. God places Elijah in the right circumstance to teach this woman who, who did not grow up in his, Israel's history, she grows up in a, in, a, in a foreign culture. All she knows is foreign gods. She knows nothing about the living God, but God places Elijah in her life that she might know about the living God of Israel and she sees it. And God places this pagan widow in just the right spot to teach Elijah, his prophet, about the living God of Israel. And he's gonna see it. And every day she takes that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil and there's always enough. Praise God from whom all biscuits flow. Every day. Every day. The key to provision is not location. God could provide in Israel. He could provide in Kareth. He could provide in Zarephath. The key to provision is not about what's in reserve. He could have ravens bring sandwiches. He could use the tiniest bit of flour and oil to make sure there's enough every day. It's not about location. It's not about how much is in reserve. It's about dependence on God. But God is not quite yet done in this story for us to understand just how far that dependence on him must go. Verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah, are you really here? Because you, the man of God, have come to me, me who I know has sinned, and now my son is paying the price for my sin. 
You can read the story for yourself. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah takes the boy, takes him to an upper room. He, he places the boy on, on a bed there and then Elijah begins to call out to God and, and his words are different, but, it, but it's really the same package of what the woman is asking and, and, and Elijah is crying out, God, are you taking him because of, of sin? And, and, and it says that Elijah stretches himself out over the boy three times. And, and it's almost this, just complete, God, everything I have, I, I, I wish this were me. God, God, everything that I have, God, would you give him life? And the story is the boy began to breathe again. I believe God was giving us a picture a long time ago of what he would ultimately provide. Does God provide water and food and shelter? Absolutely. But all those things are temporary. Can God even give breath again where there is no breath? Absolutely. But even that is temporary. But the truth is there is a greater need in all of our lives. It is the need that must be recognized. We are separated from the living God that we were made to know. We're separated him because of our sin. Just like the lady recognized that, that we have sinned against God, we are forever apart from God. But the good news we know that's coming is that God would send his only son because he so loves the world, a son who would die and rise for us. The message was cast long before he did it. Your son to the widow does not have to pay the price for your sin because my son will pay the price for your sin. He would do it for God's people, Israel, but it also was for the whole world, even those on the outside. In Luke chapter 4, many, 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 many years later, in Luke chapter 4, the Bible records Jesus' first sermon in his hometown. So he's back in the area that people have heard of them, but they, they, don't, they don't really know him. And what we are told is that a part of the conversation that day that Jesus delivers before those in his hometown goes like this. Luke chapter four, verse 24, he says, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many, check this out, widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. The story goes on to tell how they want to kill Jesus that day. And what's the whole issue about? It's because Jesus 
honors even those who were on the outside. You see, they thought that as being Israel, God's people, they, they were the only ones on the inside. They, they were the ones who had the connection to God. But the message that God had always been sending, even since Elijah, was that what he was going to do was bigger than that. See, that they're like, can't you find anybody on the inside? Because this widow, she's the wrong gender, right? In that day, a woman, she did not have the value, right? She, she is of the wrong morality. She's, she doesn't worship the living God. She's always worshiped these false gods. She, she is not the right economy. She, she has nothing to her name. She's not the right race. She's an outsider. She doesn't have a chance. Oh, but she does because now she knows the God who is the living God. The real God is a God of those of us on the outside because he's a God of grace. But she knew he's also a God of truth. Because her statement is, I'm a sinner. The real God is a God of those of us on the outside because he's a God of love. But he's also a God of justice. And that widow knew that death was the price for sin. So the question is, how how could we who are on the outside ever be able to be close to a God who is like that? Uh, Yes, a God of grace and a God of love, but a God of truth and a God of justice. When we know what we've done in our sin, how could we ever be close to such a God? And the answer is because he is a stretched out God, a God who would give his only son And whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. A God who says when it comes to rain, when it comes to food, when it comes to shelter, when it comes to breath, when it comes to hope, I want you to know you've got to depend on me and me alone. The very last verse of 1 Kings 17 reads like this. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Here's what I love about this chapter. The very first verse of the chapter, he is known as Elijah the Tishbite. By the very last verse of the chapter, He is known as Elijah, the man of God. Can I tell you, you don't get that on the mountaintop in victory. You get that in the valley where you learn to depend only on God. What if a part of what God wants to do in this crazy shelter-in-place season of our life is to show us the truth about depending on him. There is absolutely nothing, nothing in this world that is nailed down. No security, nothing to depend on. Whoever you are, at some point, the brook will dry up. Your transformation 
to being a person of God, a man of God, a woman of God, that transformation must go through seasons of learning to depend on God alone. God cares about your temporary needs, but God's ultimate provision has already been given in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sins was buried and on the third day, he arose and all who turn to him in faith live forever because Jesus is the greatest of all time. God, I thank you for some moments together in your word. God, I realize it is how we handle this season in life that says really so much about what we really do have with you. Our lack of peace or joy in this season. God, sometimes our lack of that is just a reflection of where we have been guilty of typically going for our peace and our joy. God, we search in sports. We search in being entertained. We search in what we purchase. We, we search in our work. When the truth is, God, our dependence must be in you. So God, I ask today that you would forgive us of our pride when we think that we are strong enough to handle it, God, if there was ever a moment to recognize that, it is right now where our lives can be shut down by something so tiny that we can't even see it. But God, may you use this time to grow our dependence on you. And may we know the freedom in solely depending on you. Because then, nothing else and no one else owns us. There is freedom in you. God, thanks for what you have spoken to us today. I ask your blessing on these lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray.